This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. With that, we're now going to turn to our Bibles. And so if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and open it to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. We'll be continuing our series through the book of Ecclesiastes. We now move into chapter 2. Before we read these words, let me just pray for our time. Father, I ask now as we turn to your word that you would speak to our hearts and our minds. And as we come into this room, you might quiet us and give, give us stillness long enough to hear your word. Pray for my own words that I speak, that they're not mine, that they're words from you for your people to be built up and encouraged. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll be in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Before I read this, I want to read you a quote that you might be familiar with. It says this, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Like I said, you're probably familiar with those words, and they come from the preamble of our Declaration of Independence. Signed all the way back in 1776, it was a statement from the Continental Congress of America to the King of England that the colonies that once belonged to England had now declared themselves to be an independent nation no longer connected to England and the British Empire. And the Continental Congress and the members who attended there thought that it was worthwhile to set out a document explaining why they were splitting away. It wasn't just enough to leave. They felt that they were obligated to give an explanation. And in that preamble, this is one of the lines that was included. They looked out and they said, we, we see certain rights that humans have been given. And the three they list have set the tone for our nation ever since. We believe that humans should pursue life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, the Declaration of Independence is not a God-inspired document. It's not scripture. It's just words that Thomas Jefferson and some other men wrote and signed to. But what it does do is it helps reveal the priorities of a nation. It reveals priorities of humanity that have existed long before the Declaration was signed and have certainly existed since. And one of those priorities is that humans are always in pursuit of happiness. Humans are always chasing after contentment. When these words were put into this preamble, they weren't inventing a new idea. They were just articulating a concept that's existed across all of human history, that everyone who has ever lived at some point has wished to be happy or to be content, to be satisfied. Like I've said, it's set a tone for our nation that one of our highest values is this pursuit. Can I find some sort of happiness or satisfaction? Can I feel a contentment in this life? Can I have a, a lasting, meaningful purpose for my existence here? 
What we see from our passage today is that the writer of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, is caught up in the same struggle to find his purpose, to ask the big question of life. Why am I here and what am I supposed to do? How can I find purpose or happiness? Stated in a more direct way, life on this planet is difficult and short. Is there anything worthwhile to live for while I'm here? So let's turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. We'll start in verse 1. I'll read our passage for us this morning. I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this was also vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had ever been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and all the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. We see here chapter 2 continuing trying to solve the problem that Solomon introduced in chapter 1. What is good for the children of man to do under heaven? In chapter 1, he says, it's a troublesome business that God has set his children here under heaven to live life on this earth. And now he's asking, well, while we're here, what's good for us to do? So he plans to conduct an experiment. If you look, it's almost scientific language. His process is simple. He turns to his heart and he says, I'm going to present you with various pleasures. And then I'm going to observe the effect they have on my heart and I will determine their result. Because he has a theory. If I present my heart with pleasure, perhaps in that I will find the meaning to life. Perhaps in that I will find what is worth doing. So he'll test his hypothesis and then synthesize his result to share with others. What is worth doing for the children of man while they are here under heaven? Now, as Christians, when we read this, on the one hand, it's easy to say, well, Solomon, we know the answer to that. You're asking what's good for man to do. You're asking what's going to last, what's going to endure. And we know that what endures here on this earth is that we can have eternal life, which is made possible through Jesus Christ. So trusting in Christ, we are given eternal life, and then our life will have an eternal importance. It will last and it will go on. And so it's not that big of a struggle or a question to ask. We know the answer. 
But what we know does not always translate to how we live. Solomon was the wisest man who lived. He knew God existed. He knew God was the holder of all eternity, and yet he still wrestled with what matters and what's important here in this life. And the reality is we have the same pattern in our own life. We know that God is eternal and all-powerful. He's sovereign above all things. We know that we can have a personal relationship with him through Jesus Christ, that we can be satisfied in him. And yet when we're unhappy or feel dissatisfied in life, try to remedy that our own way. Say, let me try out and just go buy something. Maybe I'll change my job. Maybe I'm just going to sit on the couch and binge Netflix for a while. Maybe that'll make it better. So it would be a mistake to think that just because we know the truth of Scripture, that God is the one who holds eternity and that we can have eternal life through him, that we will always live with that conviction at the forefront. We do the same thing that Solomon does. He's just going to be honest about it. He's going to say, I'm struggling to find a purpose for living. I'm struggling to find contentment here in this life. So I think if I just try out pleasure for a while, maybe I'll find the answer there. It's the same thing we do. Solomon's just going to come out and say it. He's feeling this ache of discontentment that this life is hard. It's not quite how it should be. And I think there's a fix to make it better. So let me go and try pleasure for a while. And what we read is his experiment in doing that. In this passage, there's at least six categories of pleasure that Solomon tries to pursue. Depending on how you read it, you might be able to count a few more, but I saw at least six categories of pleasure that Solomon methodically works through in his attempt to find something that's worth his energy and his time and living his life for. His hope is that as he goes through these categories, he'll find at least one thing that can give him lasting satisfaction. So he'll just test them one by one to see how does my heart respond to this? Is my soul satisfied with this pursuit? So I want us to look at these categories this morning to see how Solomon applied them, to see how we often try to apply them in our own life, and to see whether or not they come up wanting. So if you still have your Bible open, we see the first pleasure that Solomon tries in verse 3, substance. The first pleasure, substance. Solomon turns to wine. Said, I, che- I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom. Notice he's not saying I found this life hopeless, I found it all just a painful business, so I turned to wine. Instead, he says, wisdom's guiding me here, and I'm actually trying to use wine and drinking as a way to find pleasure, and maybe that pleasure will bring me some sort of satisfaction. Maybe there's some sort of substance that I can ingest or eat or put into my body, and that will give me some happiness. Now, maybe you're not like Solomon, and wine isn't your go-to. But it's all too easy for us to just assume that we can turn to food or drink or some other substance that can help reduce the ache or the pain of life that we have. 
We don't always think in such big terms, right? It's just I had a stressful day. Let me go see if I have some chocolate in the cabinet. But the problem is, is that it gives us that fleeting momentary pleasure, but it doesn't solve the root problem. And what we can see is that there are people who give themselves up to substance as a way to find a lasting satisfaction. If you just zoom out and look at our country and our society, you can see what happens when human beings try to find a lasting contentment through what they can put into their body, what they can eat, what they can drink. If you look just at the opioid crisis in our country alone, in 2016, there was a high water mark of 40,000 deaths from an opioid overdoses, often pain medication that had been abused. It's estimated that as many as 10 million people annually will abuse opioids. In 2016, like I said, the high water mark was 40,000 deaths from people trying to pursue that as a way to solve their problem of pain. 2019, that mark was up to 48,000 almost 50 deaths. If you look out, you'll see that alcoholism is all too often of a struggle for many people. That what starts out as enjoying drink, having a glass of wine, suddenly becomes an avenue by which people try to solve their problems. And they just give themselves over to that. And again, we, we might say, well, that's not me. I'm not a drug addict. I'm not at any danger of overdosing on drugs tomorrow. But the problem is that people are turning to substance and the pleasure that it can bring and saying, will this give me ultimate satisfaction or fulfillment? And if you chase that all the way to the end, you'll find out the answer is no. And that's what Solomon found out. Turned there, he said, I brought wisdom with me. Didn't work. So he moves on. The next category of pleasure he tries works. Look at verse 4. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. Solomon was a rich king. And not just a rich king, he was a peacetime king. And as a king, when you're not waging war and raising armies, you have a lot of time and money freed up for other activities. So for Solomon, this often became construction projects. And we know that one of the greatest things he built was the temple in Jerusalem for the people of Israel to have a central point to worship God where the Ark of the Covenant could be housed. And it was ornate. It was built to every specification that God had given and it was a display of the sort of project that Solomon could complete because of all the resources he had and all the power that he wielded with workers to bring it to a completion. But what we see here is it's not just the temple that that was confined to. Rather, he built all sorts of things. Vineyards, houses, palaces, temples. He built it all. All in an attempt to have some sort of achievement could stand the test of time. 
to be able to say, I accomplished something worthwhile, that I have my name on something that's lasting and big and important. But we know that even for Solomon, for all that he built, not much of it stood the test of time. His temple was ornate unlike anything Israel had ever seen before. And it got destroyed. Had to be rebuilt. For all the things that he built, if you go to Israel today, you don't just see dozens of houses sitting in pristine condition with Solomon's name on the cornerstone. Time came along. Things were eroded. Things were sacked. Everything he built got knocked over. The thing he built stood the test of time. For him, that was an avenue to try to channel his energy and say, maybe I can make something great enough, put my name on something important enough that'll give me a lasting purpose. My guess is not many of us are in the business of building temples or houses, but all of us probably at various times are tempted to try and rely on our accomplishments for satisfaction. Little things like keeping a full calendar so we can say, look how busy I am. Because if I'm busy, that means I'm important. That means that I have a lot of people who depend on me and rely on me. And so if you look at my calendar throughout the week, it's just full up of people that need my attention so that I can give them my advice or I can consult with them, that I can make things. How often do we try to rely on our career achievements? Say, I was able to be promoted to this level. I was able to check off this box of accomplishment to achieve this milestone in my career, hoping that something in all of that, in all the work that we're doing, in all the times that we went in early and stayed late, in all the times that we were just tired and worn down, but we still went to work and, and did our job as excellently as we could, hopefully some of that would show that we had some purpose or meaning in all of it that it was all worthwhile, that it was worth all that we put into it because it had some sort of lasting importance. The reality is, is maybe you work at a job for 10, 15, 20 years, then there's layoffs. Somehow your name's on that list. And it feels like you've just spent all this time building up a career, establishing something for yourself, and in a moment, it's just gone. Or maybe you have a, a successful career where, where you did everything right, you rose to the top, you were excellent, then you retire on a Friday, and by Monday, the company is already looking at who they're going to replace you with. And the company just moves on to the next person. And for all of the work and toil that we pour into our accomplishments, like a vapor, it just goes away. Solomon looked out and said, I tried to accomplish all these things, build these great marvels, have all these projects that were majestic like no one had ever seen. Because I thought maybe I'd find something permanent there. But he doesn't. We fall into that same temptation. Maybe if I do enough, maybe if I achieve enough, I can be successful enough, then I'll be happy. Then I can rest content and satisfied. There's just 
always a little bit more that we can achieve, always a little bit more that we can do before our heart will let us be satisfied in the works we've done. It's a never-ending cycle. So Solomon goes on to his next pleasure, riches, wealth. Verse 7, I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I said it before, but I'll say it again. Solomon was rich. And by that, I mean rich, rich. Richer than you or I, I can safely say richer than anyone in this room. It's, it's hard to estimate net worth over, over time and over history to see, well, how rich was he? But just, I spent some time this week just looking and trying to get a sense of it. As best as we can tell, Solomon's wealth equaled at least the top 100 of Forbes list combined. That meant that Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, Bill Gates are all just kind of middle class. And if they got, if those guys got all their rich friends, and you could get like Forbes, even the Forbes 400 possibly might not have had as much combined wealth as Solomon, one man, commanded. He was rich in a way that's just unfathomable. Rich to the point where you can't even spend that kind of wealth. If you woke up every day for the rest of your life and tried to spend money as fast as possible, you probably would not be able to spend as much money as Solomon had at his disposal. He had silver, gold. Other kingdoms would bring in tribute to him. He had that in his treasury. In a time where flocks and land were valuable, he had land and he had herds that you couldn't even number. It says, I had slaves. Not only does he have slaves that he's brought into his household, but his households are so big that he now has slaves that have been born there and continue to be in his domain. Because he has such a, a large household and a large estate to manage that he's just got people on people on people. Riches beyond compare. If there was anything he wanted for his comfort, anything he wanted to buy, it was an easy task. He had it all. Again, we're, we can't really fathom that sort of richness, probably. But it doesn't stop us from trying to use what we have to bring satisfaction. So like, I don't have the money that Solomon had, but maybe I'll still take the money I do have and try to use that to get some happiness. I know he wasn't able to do it with all of his wealth, but maybe I can manage it a little bit better. And I can find some satisfaction. So we say, well, I'll have a good retirement account, maybe. So to have something to live on without having to work. Maybe I'll work up, try to get a larger salary. So there's just a little bit more money that I can have at my disposal. Maybe if I could take what I have and go get a timeshare somewhere. Have a little place to go to for vacation. That might be kind of fun. Maybe a new car, especially in the wintertime if you have one of those cars that 
struggles before it'll fire up and start in the cold weather. You think maybe I'll just, if I, if I had a newer car, a nice battery that'd fire right up. That's probably what would make my life happy. I've had better furniture. Couches looking a little, little old, a little ragged. I'll replace that. And that's really what's been bothering me. That's what's keeping me back from my full happiness in life. I'll try that. It sounds silly when we say it that way, but that's how we operate. We just think, if there's some problem or inconvenience in my life, maybe there's just something out there I can purchase that'll solve it. Or maybe we try the complete opposite. Marie Kondo is very in. Minimalism is a growing movement to say, it's not about getting all the things I need. It's about getting rid of anything that I, that I don't need. I'm just going to have what I absolutely require because in those items, those things will really spark joy within me. That'll really bring me happiness if I'm really intentional about what I own. So I'll just continue to pare down until I find what's truly important. But again, if Solomon and all of his wealth couldn't find something to buy to get him some sort of permanent happiness, it's going to be hopeless for you and I to do the same. We're never going to be able to purchase the right thing to find that right pleasure that just clicks and gives us a lasting contentment. So he moves on. Riches, wealth, that didn't do it. If I try the pleasure of entertainment, still in verse 8, he says, I got singers, both men and women. Again, he was a king who would have had a whole court in his palace. And if there's any music that he wanted, he'd get a singer to come sing it for him. If there's any entertainment he desired, any art that his eyes saw that he thought was beautiful and he had to have it, he would bring that in. For us today, there's never been more avenues for entertainment than where we live today. At this point in time, video streaming accounts for 25% of all internet traffic. Netflix released numbers this past year that said in 2019, on average, a Netflix customer would stream two hours a day. By the end of April of 2020, that average was up to 3.2 hours per day. Obviously, a part of that is people being quarantined in their home. Two to three hours a day for the average Netflix customer of what they're spending just watching that next show. It's always a new season out. Entertainment is an easy way to try to fill our time and distract ourselves. If we're unhappy with something, we can always just go to the couch, fire up our favorite streaming service, find a show with a new episode, and for 30 minutes we can just veg out. We don't have to think about what's bothering us. We don't have to focus on the things that we're unhappy about. We can just focus on that screen and relax and forget about it for a minute. Like I said, it's never been easier than it is today. We can fill up every last moment. When we're in the car, we can just pull up favorite podcasts, tune into our favorite radio station. We can listen to something our whole commute into work. If we're standing in line anywhere, just pull out your phone and scroll for even 15, 30 seconds. We don't have to have a single down moment without some new content flashing in front of our eyes if we don't want to. And so if entertainment is the pleasure that can give us some sort of peace and contentment in this world, 
surely we would have access to it with all that we have before us. But again, Solomon tried that avenue. He said, I could bring in whatever entertainers I wanted. I could whatever, have whatever art my eye desired hanging right wherever I wanted it. That didn't do it. Because he had to move on and try something else. So then he tries his next pursuit of pleasure, sex. We know from 1 Kings that Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. If there was a woman he desired, he would chase after her and he would get her. And as he says in verse 9, whatever my eyes desired, I would go and get it. Because he was the king, he was the rich king, and he could do that. 700 wives, 300 concubines, chasing after physical pleasure as a way to find satisfaction and contentment. That same pursuit of physical pleasure that Solomon engaged in remains with us today. Today, pornography is globally a $97 billion industry. $97 billion. For reference, that's roughly four to five times the revenue of the National Football League, and that eclipses the combined revenue of CBS, ABC, and NBC. $97 billion spent on people trying to pursue physical pleasure. Each day, millions of users go onto apps like Tinder or others, which are primarily used for casual hookups, because sex has been sold as an avenue to lasting fulfillment, to a permanent contentment. But again, Solomon tried that. If there was anything his eyes desired, he gave it to them. In whatever measure his heart desired pleasure, he provided it. And at the end, he just says, it was vanity. It was a breath. It was a vapor. For all the pleasure that I chased after, I couldn't find one thing that would give me a lasting, permanent happiness. That would give me a contentment and a satisfaction that would stay with me. And the last pleasure that Solomon tries to give his heart is that of his legacy. Verse 9, he says, I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. He was a king who expanded borders, expanded influence, expanded wealth, expanded the majesty of his land. But remember, in just a couple of generations, that all falls apart. Even his legacy as a king is tainted by the fact that he didn't faithfully follow God all of his days. And this vast, majestic kingdom that he had built would soon be divided up. And eventually the people would be carted off into other lands. So for all that he built across his life, for the fact that he was able to rise up and be greater than anyone in Jerusalem, it would take just a couple of years before... You wouldn't even know that it ever happened. So he engages in this experiment. Let me give my heart whatever pleasure it wants. And maybe when I do that, I can find what is good for the children of man to do while they're here on this earth. So he, he summarizes his investigation in this way again. 
Verse 9, so I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. And I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Think of that. He tried food, drink. He tried his works and accomplishments, the wealth and riches he had, entertainers, concubines, legacy. He tried all of it. And he said, I can sum up all of these pursuits in one word, vanity. It's where we started in chapter one. Everything is just this breath or this vapor that you can't really hold on to. Because it's all just passing. It's fleeting. And notice, it's not that he couldn't find pleasure in those things. In fact, he does. He says, I chased after pleasure. In all these different avenues, I tried to get pleasure. And I got pleasure. I found that. But the problem is that he wasn't just trying to get pleasure. He was trying to get something beyond that. He was trying to get a satisfaction that would last and be permanent. He was trying to get a pleasure that would lead to an eternal contentment and happiness. He wanted to find a purpose for life itself. He wanted to find something worth spending his energy on in every waking moment. And he found out, I, I can get pleasure. I know where to find that. But the problem is that even when I get pleasure itself, that doesn't lead me to where I want to go. When we look at our own lives, we, we can see the same thing at work. The problem is that nothing we try here under the sun has lasting power. If you think of, of the best meal you've ever had, maybe it was a Thanksgiving dinner. For me, it was probably a Thanksgiving dinner. I, I couldn't name a specific one, but that's usually the day where you have all the best food prepared with all the care in the world. You have as much of it as you want to eat. And oftentimes, at least for me, maybe I won't speak for the room, at the end of the meal, I am full. I'm satisfied, kind of sleepy, but I'm content. But the problem is the best Thanksgiving meal I've ever had is just as good as all the ramen I ate in college for how full it left me eventually. The best Thanksgiving I ever had, I was still hungry the next day. I still needed to eat a meal the next day. The best food and drink in the world don't last. All the riches you could ever try to gather together are going to eventually fade. Or you might spend a life gathering riches for yourself. And Solomon will say this later, and in a moment you could die and those riches just go to somebody else. Spend your whole life chasing after that just for it in a flash to belong to someone else. I could spend every waking second trying to entertain myself and fill every crevice of my life with some form of content. Just kind of distract myself from anything that's bothering me, any pain that I have. But eventually, when the episode stops, when the podcast runs out, I'm still left with the problem that I had before. 
All the pleasures of the world can't produce a permanent satisfaction. That's just the problem. All the pleasures of the world. He says over and over again in the book of Ecclesiastes, I'm looking under the sun. That is to say, I'm looking on this earth. I'm looking in this world to try to find some reason for living and some permanent, purposeful reason for being here. And after an extensive search under the sun, there's nothing. I said at the outset, Christians, we know we have the right answer to this. It's because there is nothing under the sun that's permanent and lasting, because what is permanent is Christ and the life he offers and the God who is above this very world. And so if you want to find lasting contentment in this life, it's possible through the eternal life that Jesus offers any who would repent and believe. But I also said that even if you have all the wisdom of Solomon or all the scripture knowledge in the world, and you know that satisfaction is found in Christ, we'll often default to trying to find it here on this earth. So we say, yeah, I know God's the provider of everything. But when I feel like I don't have enough, I'm just going to try some things here down on earth to solve that problem before I lean on God. I know that God is intimately aware with every pain that I have. That he sympathizes with my weaknesses. But when I feel weak or in pain, I'm going to go to try to find something here on this earth to address that real quick before I try and go and bring that to God. We can know everything there is to know about God and his goodness and still run the other way. We know our greatest satisfaction is in him. But when we feel dissatisfied, we default by turning to the things of this world to solve that problem. We pursue the same sorts of things that Solomon did. I think the reason why is that those things that we often pursue, the things that Solomon outlined here, are not inherently bad. God has given these things as gifts, whether food or drink. He's given some of the comforts that we have as a gift. I live in an apartment with a furnace. This past week, or the weeks before, when it was 20, 10, 0 degrees, I was comfortable. My furnace would fire up. I slept just fine. Didn't have to worry about dying from exposure to the elements. It's not bad that I have a furnace in the comfort and luxury of living in a conditioned space. It's a gift from God. It's a gift from God that we can have any possessions. It's a gift from God that we can have entertainment and arts that expose a beauty in this world. Those are all gifts from God. But oftentimes we take our focus from the giver and put them on the gifts themselves. And we say, God has given me a good thing, and I'm going to latch onto that good thing and try to get satisfaction from it rather than the one who gave it to me. So it's not that these things are inherently bad that we chase after. And they do provide some fleeting pleasure, and it gives us just that little bit of hope to say, yeah, maybe this is the right avenue to solve my pain to address the problems that I'm having. It's because we, we latch onto the gift. When I was in high school, there was a, a Christmas, I think my sophomore year, where we'd had a Christmas morning, we opened all the gifts, and in, in my family we always sort of rotate who opens. 
So, so we all kind of go through the family. And, and I remember we had rotated through the morning, and I opened a couple gifts for my siblings, some for my parents. And then it was sort of towards the end of, of the gift opening time. And my dad walked out of the room, and then he came back with my last gift. And it's one of the, my favorite gifts that I've ever gotten at Christmas. He walks back in the room, and he's holding a brand-new guitar. First guitar I ever had. I still have that guitar. It's the guitar I, I play every Sunday here. And he walked back into the room, and he had gone to the music store, talked to the salesman, and had tried to understand what makes a good acoustic guitar, what are the brands to look for. And he had spent a, a whole afternoon trying to find this gift for me because he knew I wanted one. My mom, and, my mom and him knew that that was a gift I was looking forward to. And so they went out and they got it. I thought it was... There was no chance I would get one, but he came back in the room and he was holding it. And they loved me enough that they wanted to give me this guitar. Now imagine for a second that I take that gift from him and say, thank you so much. And look at my parents and say, I don't need you anymore. I've got this. To say, I've got this great gift. And so now it's just going to replace the person who gave it to me. I don't need my parents anymore because they've given me this amazing gift. How silly would that be? And it sounds strange to say, well, of course you would never say, oh, I don't need my parents because I have a guitar. But that's exactly what we say when we say, I don't need a relationship with God anymore because he's given me a few good gifts that I can play with and distract myself with. To say, I don't need God because I can try to get some of the things he's given me here on this earth. And probably those things are going to give me satisfaction. That's what happens when we stop focusing on God as our ultimate joy and satisfaction. And start just lowering our gaze and saying, maybe some of the good things he's given are what will truly make me happy. And that's why often, even though we might have all the knowledge of God and the joy that he offers... We get caught up on chasing joy, happiness through the things that are here under the sun. Just like Solomon, we have the wisdom to know who God is. We have the knowledge of what he has given. But we say, let me just take a minute and look away from God, look to the things of this world, and maybe I'll just find joy there. So how do we keep our eyes raised? How do we keep our focus on the one who has given us all these things rather than on the things themselves. I have just four short suggestions for you. Suggestions on how you might find your satisfaction in God and not the things of this world. How as you're chasing joy or happiness, you might not settle until you have found the source in God himself rather than anything he can provide. Four suggestions. First, Thank the gift giver regularly. Thank him regularly. To remind yourself that if there's any good thing I have, it is a gift from God. It's not because of my own worthiness. It's not because of my own hard work that I have anything good. But it's all from God. It's from him. Second, be honest with God about where you are seeking your contentment. Solomon was honest. He told his heart. Listen, heart, I'm looking for happiness. I'm going to try pleasure. Let's see how that goes. Be honest with God and say, God, I'm dissatisfied. I'm not content in my life right now. And right now, I think I'm trying to find that contentment with 
fill in the blank. Just be honest in your prayer life. Confess that to God. God, here's what I'm chasing after instead of you. Here's what I'm trying to fill my life with rather than a relationship with you. Third, fast regularly as well. Fasting is is a discipline we see in the Bible, including Jesus himself. And when Jesus talks about fasting, he assumes it will be a regular discipline of his followers to, for a period of time, forego something, some gift from God, and with that, seek God through prayer. Fasting is foregoing something God has given you and taking that time and energy and seeking God in prayer. Oftentimes we think of fasting with food, where we we say maybe for a day or a meal, I'm not going to eat. Instead, I'm going to go before God in prayer. And as we do that, we remember that ultimately I need God more than I need to eat. Or maybe I, I need God more than I need Netflix or whatever it is. Let me fast from something so that I might remember I don't need that thing to survive. I don't need that thing for joy. I need God himself. Fast regularly. Remove things from your life that are a temptation to distract you from the joy that can be found in God. Fourth, proclaim the surpassing worth of knowing God. Proclaim it to one another here in this room. Proclaim it to everyone you come in contact with. And the way that you proclaim this worth of knowing God is by finding joy in knowing God, by going to him regularly, by seeing and savoring the beauty of Christ. So be in prayer, be in the word, feed your soul with those things so that you might see God's surpassing beauty and worth, and then go out and proclaim it to the world. Like I mentioned, our nation as a priority says we're in a pursuit of happiness. And for many in this nation, that pursuit's not going well. I mentioned things like the opioid crisis, boon of the pornography industry, many other things where we can see a world that is chasing after something that'll last. And we get to be the ones that say we found something that's not vanity, but that'll be here tomorrow and the next day. And when this world itself ends, our joy will endure because it is rooted in Christ. And we'll be with him forever. Let's pray. Father, I ask us that we would remain dissatisfied with any pleasure this world has to offer until we can find ultimate satisfaction in you. And in that, may we be those who loudly proclaim the hope that is offered through Christ, the salvation that we can have from our sin, and that we might be those who proclaim your kingdom to any and all who are listening. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our Savior is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words. Building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about this vision and our hope for our neighborhood, visit us online at osefc.org.